A very good morning to you all on this, the 19th of September, and uh, welcome to Bank Crew Christian Fellowship Church. I'm now going to ask uh, Rachel Japelin if she would read God's Word to us. And while she comes forward, that will be Acts chapter 3 in its entirety, um, and that's available either in your diary or I do hope if you've got a Bible with you or your iPad or other electronic device with a, with a copy of the Bible in it. Okay, morning everyone. So it's the whole of Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from perseverance of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, Good morning, and thank you so much for joining with us today. And uh, please do turn back with me to Acts chapter 3. You'll find the the words of that chapter printed in the diary if you picked one of those up on the way in. So please do follow along. We are steadily working our way through this, this book of Acts, and it's one of these Uh, particularly exciting books of the Bible because it tells the story of the early church. Um, In the first couple of chapters, we have seen Jesus commission His followers to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. We've seen the Holy Spirit come upon them to give them power to do that work. We have heard them declare the message about Jesus, to speak about His life, His death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And we've heard them make this call to all who will hear it, that they need to turn to Jesus. They need to change their mind about Him, stop rejecting Him, and embrace Him. They need to live a life devoted to Him. And we've seen them deliver the promise that for all who do that, they'll receive forgiveness of sins, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen in chapter 2 as well this common life that the first Christians shared together, how together they wanted to know Jesus better, together they wanted to worship Him, together they wanted to tell others about Him. And as we come into chapter 3 this morning, Luke, who writes this book, he lays out a specific scene for us. It's a very important scene, actually. This scene runs from chapter 3 right through to the end of chapter 4. And if you were to read on, you would find that actually this story that Luke is telling us is when persecution starts to rise for the church, when real external opposition comes and applies pressure to the church. And so what we have in chapter 3 is the prelude to that. And that's interesting for us because what it is that brings the persecution in chapter 4 is what we read of in chapter 3. It's the church being the church. Doesn't do anything particularly provocative. Doesn't try and overhaul a government. The church is simply being the church. Now, there's a temptation for us in this chapter. And it's one that, um, to try and relate it, um, have you ever seen any kind of card trick or any kind of illusion that a performer might do? It depends almost entirely on the art of misdirection. He wants to distract your attention. He will subtly but deliberately draw your attention to something over here so that he can manipulate something over here when you're not looking. That's how it works. While you're focusing on what you think is important, you're missing where the real action is, and that's how you're deceived. Well, this scene that uh, Rachel read for us in Acts 3 is one where we, all of us, can very easily fall into the trap of misdirection. Not because God, who is powerfully at work here, wants to misdirect us, but because we tend to misdirect ourselves. This chapter opens with real drama, doesn't it? Something you do not see every day. But we can very easily let our attention fall on the wrong thing. We can be so caught up with the miracle, the healed man, 
the apostles, that we miss what's really going on in this passage. That's the natural inclination we're going to see of the crowd in Acts 3. And it's a danger for us as well. And Peter is here in Acts 3 to help them and to help us with this strong reminder that there is power in the name of Jesus. And that that's where our focus needs to be. There is power in the name of Jesus. Well, we're told in chapter 2 that the early church, they gathered together in the temple. And here's an example of just that. Peter and John, they go up to the temple. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. That's the hour of prayer. They are going there to pray. And outside one of the gates of the temple is this tragic figure, a man who all of his life has lived with this disability that has meant that he was never able to walk. A man who, it's remarkable really, isn't it, who has has some survival skills. I mean, it's remarkable in those days, 2,000 years ago, that he survived into adulthood. But it's meant that he has anything but a comfortable life. He depends upon friends who carry him to the gate of the temple just in time for the crowds to arrive. And that's important because he's there to beg. I don't know, maybe people are more willing to to part with their money if there's a beggar at the church door than they are if you meet them somewhere else. And so he sees Peter and John, and he does what he does to everyone else, and he asks them for alms. I don't really use that word anymore, but uh, he's simply asking for a charitable donation of money, if you please. This is how he survives. This is his day-to-day life. And it's encouraging, isn't it, that Peter is not too busy with the recent excitement of all that's been going on. He's not too busy reciting his prayers in anticipation of going into the time of prayer. He's not too dignified. He doesn't pretend that he doesn't see the beggar there. In fact, he does what uh, almost none of us do even today. He stops and he looks at him. He looks him in the eye. And he says to this chap who probably never lifts his head to look someone in the eye. He says, look at us. Well, he thinks he's in, doesn't he? He looks expecting to get something, maybe a shekel. But Peter utters these immortal words. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What an insensitive thing to say. What an utterly insensitive thing to say. This man would have been a pathetic figure at the gate of the temple. His legs would be these withered things. They'd never borne any weight in all of his life. They would have had next to no muscle mass about them. And Peter is saying, in effect, ah, come on, son, get on your bike. And yet the man himself, he does not dismiss the command. Notice it's a command from Peter. Instead, he locks hands with them, and he's lifted to his feet. Those weak limbs, Luke tells us here, immediately they find strength. All of the necessary neurological connections are put in place, not only for him to stand up, 
not only for him to walk, but we read of him leaping. The evidence here is that the lame man responds to Peter's words. He's not passive entirely here. Peter comes to him and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man responds. The man doesn't say, how dare you say that to me? Can't you see that I can't walk? He responds in faith. And the evidence of that is is in his willingness not just to stand, but we see him when he goes into the temple. He's praising God. Who does he think has done this for him? He recognizes this hasn't come from Peter or John. It's God's power that has healed him and restored him. And that's what we're told in verse 8. Leaping up, he stood, began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And it causes a stir. And why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? Leaping around, praising God, that in itself wasn't the norm. But more than that, everyone knows who this is. Every one of them who were in the temple that day had probably walked past him on their way in. They had seen this pathetic figure, and now what do they see? A completely different scene. And Luke really wants to get across the transformation to us because he he repeats the same language. This is kind of a good principle for Bible reading. When, When it repeats something again, it's for emphasis. And so, Luke repeats this in verse 10. What what does he say? They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Well, Luke's already told us that, but he repeats it to just emphasize this transformation that has taken place. He He was just a few minutes ago sitting at the gate, begging. Now he's jumping around the place, praising God. And so all who saw this were filled with wonder and amazement. And there is a lot to take in here. Our eyes are... I'm sure, drawn to the man who has been healed. That's where my eye tends to land in this passage. And perhaps uh, if if your mind works that way, you're inquisitive to know. Well, what specifically was wrong with him? What was healed? What would have been required to have the Lord, what would the Lord have required to do to, to fix this man's problem? Maybe we would want to have a deeper appreciation of just what this um, miracle would do for this man's life. Just think, he won't have to beg anymore. Maybe he could get on his bike and find some work. He could look after himself. He wouldn't need his friends to carry him anymore. He could go into the temple now, something that his disability meant that he wasn't allowed to go into the temple, not just that he couldn't, he wasn't permitted to be taken into the temple. This transformation must have been a shock to the senses of everyone who saw it. Maybe our gaze then settles on the apostles. And we think, how on earth do they wield such power? Is there something in the form of words that Peter uses that would help us to tap into that sort of miraculous power? What was it about them? Was it their faith? What was it? But all of this, as intriguing as it might be, is to miss the main point. And that's what Peter explains from verse 11. Because you see, he understands that the crowd, verse 12, they cannot take their eyes off Peter. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? 
Peter has a message for them, and it's a message for us as well. Really, he says to them, if you understood Jesus, you would not be half as surprised as you are right now. If you understood Jesus, you wouldn't be surprised by this. You see, the thing that is sitting in plain sight, but so easily overlooked by us in this account, is that this man was commanded to rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is the key phrase here for understanding what's taken place. He's commanded in the name of Jesus to rise up and walk. And that is what Peter wants everyone to understand. So Peter says, why stare at us? We didn't do this by our power. Instead, he tells them the message about Jesus. So one thing to notice throughout Peter's message is that he gives Jesus certain titles. really love you to spot these with me. Because these titles help everyone who hears them to be clear on the identity of Jesus. I'm going to take them in reverse order. If you start in verse 15, you'll see that Peter describes Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the author of life. The author of life. The one who gives life. That is quite a claim. I mean, we all have life. Well, I'm looking out here. I know that at least 80% of you have life. We all have life, but we only have life because it's been given to us. None of us has life in and of ourselves. The life we have originated somewhere else. It is God who is the giver of life. Indeed, all life on earth traces its origin to God the creator. God is life. And here, Peter identifies Jesus as the author of life. Just think about the grandness of that claim. Go up another verse to verse 14. Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. This is the sort of language that the Bible uses to describe God again, but also the language used to describe this rescuer whom God is going to send to rescue his people from their sins. It describes the one who would be perfectly obedient to God. And then you go back up again, verse 13, we read, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant, Jesus. This is another important title. Picks up on, on some parts of the Old Testament where particularly the prophets, they look ahead to the coming of this Savior, and they call him God's servant, and what's key to that picture of the, of the Messiah being the servant of the Lord is that he is a suffering servant, a servant who suffers in the place of God's people. His suffering leads to the freedom of others as he suffers on their behalf. And it's as Peter gets these great titles out and across to his audience, Jesus is the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the servant of the Lord, it surely adds to the weight of the mistakes that these listeners have made. They have made a huge error in judgment, and all of this piles on top of them. And so in this passage, I spot four things that Peter brings the crowd to task for. So you notice Peter says, God 
glorified his servant Jesus. That's verse 13. He raised him up, gave him the place of honor, seated him in in heaven at his right hand. But this is in marked contrast with what these Jewish listeners had done with Jesus. Still verse 13, what did they do? God's glorified him, but what did they do? They delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. And they delivered him over, him over to Pilate so that Pilate might execute him. They delivered him over. Well, then what else did they do? Verses 13 and 14, you denied him. So you delivered uh, Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Pilate, the governor, had no care whatsoever for Jewish hopes or promises of a Messiah. He couldn't care less about that stuff, but he could find no fault in Jesus. He put him on trial and could find nothing deserving of execution. But it was Jesus's fellow countrymen, his kinsmen, those who were supposed to be looking for him and ready to receive him, instead they denied him. They denied the holy and righteous one. And then comes accusation number three, still verse 14. What did they do? They asked for a murderer to be granted to them. When given the choice of Jesus or Barabbas the murderer, they chose the murderer They chose the man with blood on his hands. So they delivered him, they denied him, they asked for a murderer instead of him. And final accusation, verse 15, well, this sums it up. They killed the author of life. The Savior who had come not to condemn the world, but to save it. The Savior who had come to give life, to give eternal life. They killed him. But, verse 15, God raised him from the dead. And that is what Peter and John and the other Christians are there to tell them. He says, he says that there, doesn't it? We are, to this, we are witnesses. And if you were to read through Peter's sermons, even compare it to the one we looked at a few weeks ago in Acts 2, the resurrection is central to Peter's preaching. Because it's there at the resurrection that Jesus is truly vindicated. He is shown there in his resurrection is that all that Jesus claimed to be, all that Jesus claimed he was going to do, are all shown to be true by his resurrection from the dead. And so it is by faith in his name that the chap who was crippled and begging at the temple gate, he's been made strong. And Peter says to them in verse 16, as you can see with your own eyes, this is what the power of the name of Jesus does. Now, in deciding how many verses of Acts chapter 3 to cover in this morning's service, um, there was some contemplation about finishing there at verse 16. But the problem with doing that is that we might be tempted to think that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again from the dead, is now seated in heaven simply to heal the lame. 
We could then have had a series of encouraging testimonies about how the Lord has, first of all, worked similarly in other parts of Scripture. We could even have testimony of how the Lord has worked in this sort of way in our lives or in the lives of people we know. But friends, Peter goes out of his way in this message to tell us that if we stop there, we have fallen into the trap of misdirection. We're missing the main thing. Because really, Peter says to them that this healing of the lame man, believe it or not, as amazing as it is, is actually just a miniature picture of the power that is in the name of Jesus. What has happened in the temple on this day is a miniature picture of the real power that is in the name of Jesus. Peter does not actually here offer his listeners healing, though I'm going to qualify that later. He offers them Jesus. And what he brings is more than short-term health improvement. If that's what you're looking for, I'm afraid you're selling Jesus short. You get Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, the servant of the Lord who dies, who suffers in the place of sinners. No, this event that has happened to this this poor man at the gate, who's no longer a poor man at the gate, it's, it's almost like watching a, a trailer for a movie, a good trailer, one that draws you in. You've only got maybe 45 seconds of this, but straight away you've got a sense of the, the excitement that's going on in this, in this film that you could see. And you think to yourself, if this is how exciting the trailer is, how good must the movie be? That's the sort of idea here. And that's what Peter is going to show them. This healing is there to point to something even greater, far more important. And that's why from verse 17, this message gets much more personal for those listening. So beware, it becomes more personal for you too. Peter says, you killed the author of life and God raised him from the dead. And that's a problem because it's never good when you and God come to different conclusions about something. Their conclusion about Jesus was he was worthy of death. God's conclusion about Jesus is he's worthy to take the seat that reigns over all. How convicting that must have been for them. But Peter is here to give them good news. There's another chance. Verse 17, he acknowledges they acted in ignorance. They didn't realize what a mistake they were making. And in fact, through those mistakes, God fulfilled the promise that his Christ must suffer. Interesting use of the word must there in, uh, or that his Christ would suffer um, in verse 18. But even though you acted in ignorance, even though God was able to use your bad choices to fulfill his purposes, you need to respond is the message of verse 19. You need to respond. You need to repent and turn again. You need to change your mind about Jesus. Peter loves to speak about this, doesn't he? Repent, change your mind. 
that conclusion you'd come to about Jesus, you need to turn it around 180 degrees and point in the other direction. Don't run from Him. Don't rebel against Him. Embrace Him. Trust Him. Believe in Him. And turn again back to God. A new direction for life following Jesus. And you notice this call to respond, it comes with promises, praise God. Still verse 19, what's the first promise? Your sins will be blotted out. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That is the wrong things you've done. The things you've done that are against God, opposed to God. The things you've done that are selfish and have no consideration for God. Even the good things you've done, which you felt good about, but you had no concern about how God felt about them. He says, the record of all of those wrongs, they will be deleted forever. They will be expunged from your records. But this is only through the death of Jesus. This is why what the, the, the prophets foretold was that the Christ would suffer, that he had to suffer. He is the holy and righteous one. He has no sins of his own, yet on the cross he suffers as a sinner, bearing the penalty that sin deserves so that every sinner who comes to him in faith can have their sins blotted out. And that is still the promise of Jesus. And it is very possible that there are some here who will say, well, if you only knew how much ink was needed to record my past, if you only knew how messy the stains were in what I have done, if you only knew how severely I've messed up, how much damage I've done, how much guilt I carry, how much shame rises to the surface within me, then you would know there's no way that God could blot that out for me. Listen very carefully. Peter here in Acts 3 is speaking to people who piled their hatred, their murderous hatred on Jesus Christ. They were responsible for the murder of the Son of God. And God sends a messenger to say to them, turn again, change your mind, trust in Jesus, and your sins will be blotted out. And I'm still able to proclaim that to you today. Whatever your history, however shameful you might think it is, this promise comes to you today. Turn to Jesus, trust in Him, and He'll blot it out. And not just sweep it under the carpet. He'll say, look to the cross because it's there that I've paid the penalty for it all. You struggle with shame. There was no more shameful thing than for the Son of God to hang on a cross. He's taken it away. Trust in Him. There's a promise too. You go into verse 20 that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I believe this is the same application that Peter made in his previous sermon where he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think he's making those same two points here. So he's saying, repent and turn again, your sins will be blotted out and you'll receive times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You will receive the gift of the Holy 
Spirit. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within. He gives new life. He brings us into this adoption into the family of God. He gives us the reassurance that we really are God's children. He makes us feel the love of God in our hearts. And so we see, aren't we? We're seeing this more and more, how the the healing of the lame man is, is but a picture of what Christ has done. He brings new life from utter paralysis before God. He forgives us. He gives us Himself by His Spirit, and He produces in His people a life of joy and praise because we've understood what Jesus has done. Just like that lame man understood that it was God who had done this for him, so we who receive Jesus Christ, who find this forgiveness of sins, who receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we rejoice because we've understood what Jesus has done for us. But there's another promise here. There's a promise here for the future. Um, Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke. It's a promise that God will send Jesus again. Jesus waits in heaven until the appointed time when He's going to come back and He's going to restore all things. It's the repeated message of the Bible that the pain of this world is not and will not be the final word. I suppose I am slightly contradicting what I said earlier, because actually here Peter does offer to each and every one of those listening healing, full and complete healing for everyone from all their diseases from all of their hurts, all of their sadnesses and sorrows. And He promises it to them on the day when Jesus comes again to make all things new. That is the day when every injustice will be put right, for that is the day when every heart will be exposed before God, including yours and including mine. And for all those who belong to Jesus, it will be the day when we are clothed with new bodies, like His glorious body, when we will dwell in perfect, unfettered relationship with God forever. Let's not fall into the trap of misdirection. It's easy to get so caught up on the healing that we think that Luke writes this to present it to us as this is the norm, this is what you should see every day. I don't believe that's why he puts this here. This healing takes place as a foretaste, a little foretaste. It's the trailer that is anticipating the full movie. Now, sometimes God graciously gives us that foretaste, and we have seen people restored to health by the Lord through the prayers of His people, and for that we praise God. But this is what Jesus has come to bring, 
sins blotted out, times of refreshing from the Holy Spirit, and the hope of all things restored. And I think a sign that Christians have fallen into misdirection on this is to ask, what do we pray for when we gather together? If we were to do a a survey of our prayer lists, what dominates them? I think for many, it is prayers for the sick. And I'm not discouraging anyone from praying for the sick. I do it every day. But you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world if a Christian doesn't get better and they die. Because you know what? They go to heaven to be with Jesus. Do you know what is the worst thing in the world? When someone dies without Jesus. And you know what's the worst thing in the world for a Christian who's ill? Not that they might die, but they don't, they don't deepen in their trust for the Lord Jesus. And I think this passage is crying out to us, let's not fall into misdirection. Pray for the sick. Pray for healing. Pray with boldness. But do not ever forget to pray that this spiritual work that the gospel does in a soul would take place. Because where that doesn't happen, that's the real disaster. Pretty sure it's Alistair Begg who says somewhere that Christians in prayer spend more time trying to pray Christians out of heaven than pray sinners out of hell. Peter repeatedly refers to how God spoke through the prophets. I don't know if you picked that up as we were going through the reading. Certainly, I think verse 18, verse 20, 21, 22, 24, Peter makes a big thing about this how the prophets have spoken and said that these days are coming. And he emphasizes this because his audience are Jews. They were brought up on the message of the prophets. And in effect, Peter rounds off his message here in Acts chapter 3 by saying, you missed Jesus, your Messiah, the first time round. Whatever you do, don't make the same mistake again. He says to them, you've got no excuse. Look how he does this. Verse 22, he takes them to Moses. Moses said that another prophet like him would rise up. And he told you to listen to that prophet when he comes. And he warned you, verse 23, that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. More than that, he says, verse 24, all the prophets who've spoken, from Samuel right the way through, they spoke about these days. Now, says Peter, you are privileged. You stand in a long line of people who come from the prophets. You're children of this promise that God gave to Abraham. A promise that he would bless all the families of the earth. And now he says, well, that, 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 has, that promise has now come to pass. That offspring of Abraham has come. And he's come to bless every nation on earth. And he's starting with you. God's shown this by raising him from the dead. And he's come to you first so that you might be the first family blessed. What are you going to do with Jesus? We're not actually told the response here. Something else takes place, which we'll see next week. 
But this remains the most significant question you'll ever be asked in your life. If Jesus is God, if Jesus died on the cross for sinners, if Jesus rose again from the dead, if Jesus really is reigning in heaven, waiting to return to restore all things, then the most important thing in your life is to have a relationship with Him. And so that crucial question comes to you, what are you going to do with Jesus? Today He comes to you personally, and He says, come. Come to me. He says, I know all about those dark recesses in your past. I know all about those dark corners in your heart right now. That's why I came. That's why I suffered, so that all of that can be taken away. Come and trust me, he says. Follow me, he says. Know life as it was meant to be lived by following me, he says by having a life lived in relationship with the living God. The alternative is to reject Him. And the stern warning that came to those Jews in Acts 3 comes to each one of us today. Don't reject Him again. Don't reject Him again. It will be your ruin. Indeed, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, if we're convinced by all that is here, that He has come to bless all the families on the earth. If we've known that blessing, then we have to take this message of Jesus to others, don't we? How can we sit on our hands when we have so much to say? And we don't step forward simply because there's some duty to be performed, though sure that can be part of it, Step forward because we're confident of what Peter was confident of, that there is power in the name of Jesus. There was power to heal this lame man. I tell you, you walk out there with power that does much more than that, power to forgive sins, power to bring life to the dead. That's what this message does, because that's what Jesus does, and that's what we point people to. This name, everything that's wrapped up in this name is Jesus himself. By faith in his name, your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing will come, and you'll have hope for the future. Amen.